we appreciate the most. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pray uh, before we read. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together. Thank you for this opportunity to preach your word and to be among fellow believers. We're so uh, honored to be together this morning. We pray that you speak to us now through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. What we're reading is the introduction to something called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon ever preached. It's the longest recorded teaching of Jesus Christ in the Bible. He preached it near the beginning of his ministry, at the start of his ministry, when he was primarily zigzagging throughout Galilee. Galilee is in northern Israel. What we, see, we think of the nation of Israel today, Galilee is kind of the northern half of that nation. And that's where Jesus, in many ways, began his ministry. He went from town to town, village to village, and he began teaching, and he even began performing miracles. And as you might imagine, as a result, large numbers of people, many thousands of people, began to get interested in what Jesus had to say. They wanted to hear him speak, and so on one occasion, he was near the Sea of Galilee. This is not far from the border of Israel and Syria today. He found a mountainside, a nice flat spot, where literally... To this day, uh, there are areas up there. We don't know exactly where he preached the sermon, but, but in the general area, there are mountainsides where literally thousands of people could gather and hear, because of the natural acoustics, what one man was speaking. And so there is Jesus on a mountainside with this mass number of people, probably in the thousands. And it says that he actually went up there initially with his, his disciples, his followers, his close inner circle of people, and the crowds happened to come Along And so Jesus, never being one to not have something to say, began to teach specifically his disciples, but in the hearing of the rest of the crowds. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read it, I want to encourage you this week to read the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5 and ends in uh, Matthew chapter 7. It's, it's, it's two chapters. It's not very long, but it is an incredible sermon. And, and many people in, in religious circles today, when they think of the Sermon on the Mount, they tend to think of it as a list of commands. They tend to compare it to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. We've all heard of those, right? They tend to make a comparison between the two. Now, the Sermon on the Mount does reference the, 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 old, the, the Ten Commandments, or what we more formally call the Law of Moses. But that's not... Uh, all that the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not a list of commands like the law of Moses was. You know, the, the law of Moses was given to the Israelites 3,500 years ago at Mount Sinai. The Israelite people had left Egypt in the Exodus. God led them to the Mount of Mount Sinai where he gave the law of Moses, what we call the Ten Commandments. It was really many hundreds of commands. And these, these commandments forged this this. Israelite community, this group of former slaves into a powerful civilization because they had this incredible law code. It's still an incredible law code to this day. It's still better than almost any other law code that has ever existed uh, on planet Earth. In fact, I would say it is better than any other law code that was ever given to any civilization or any community in the history of man. It's an incredible law code. But by the time of Jesus Christ, this law code became more law than code. I want you to think about that statement for a minute. It became more about the commands than the conduct of the individual person. They were more concerned 
with the obedience to the certain laws and commands, and they began to miss the spirit and the heart of it, the code part of it. There's an old saying, you can't see the forest because the trees are in the way. That's what happened in Jesus's day with the, with the, the, the common application and understanding of the law of Moses. And Jesus challenged that state of affairs. He challenged that status quo. He actually emphasized the law of Moses as more of a code and less of a law. He didn't dismiss the law. He didn't say you don't need to obey the law, but he was more emphasizing the code part of it, the spirit part of it. Another way to look at it is Jesus was more about the way and less about the what. He wanted us to go in a direction. You know, he's still doing that today. When we read his words today, they're still speaking to us. They're still calling us to a way and not so much a what. Now, this brings us to our, our theme for today, our series for today, and our specific text that I want us to look at. Verse 10, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a statement that I sometimes wish he didn't say. What does persecution have to do with this? Why do I need to be, why am I blessed when I'm persecuted? That just doesn't seem to sit right. Well, like watching the X Games, we gotta go deeper. We gotta examine this statement a little bit more in its context, in its meaning. And I think by the end of today, hopefully, and by the end of this series, the various statements that we look at, hopefully you'll have the same reaction I had to the, to the X Games. Wow, there's more going on here than meets the eye. This is pretty incredible. This is pretty awesome. And I hope that these statements will become things that we all learn to appreciate and less be repelled by. Verse 10, as I said before, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray before we go deeper. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And I pray that you open up our hearts and help us to get to the code. Help us to get to the intent, to the spirit not worry so much about the details, about the specifics, about the commands, but to see the overall purpose that you have for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. This, uh, this statement comes at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is called, who can guess it? What do we call the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes. Some of you may aware of that. If you don't, that's totally okay. But these... This introductory uh, statement to the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And it's a series of statements like this. Blessed are those who, and then has a word like who are meek or, or who mourn or who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then it follows with some sort of reward. They will inherit the earth, etc. That's called the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, if you were to go back, we don't have time. I would love to do a whole study on it today, but we don't have time. But if you were to go back, when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you read just the first 10 verses... You're going to get in those first 10 verses a picture of Jesus's way. This is what he intended. This is the code that he intended us for us to follow. It's not so much commands as it is a way of being, a way of living. Now, something I want you to point, I want to point out here, and this is really important. When you read them, I want you to understand something. No one is naturally like the Beatitudes. Not one of us here is born with the Beatitudes. They don't come from uh, our, ourselves. They're not something that are generated because of who we are. Because they're not temperament. They're not, 
traits. We tend to compare them to traits, like one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. We tend to think, oh, I know a guy, he's so peaceful and cool, and he always is a good mediator between people. And he may have a tendency to, to, to be better at relationships than someone else, but, but Jesus is not talking about our personality. He's talking about a whole uh, new level of being a peacemaker. In fact, this is something, to, to become the Beatitudes requires a, a major transformation of your life. Because you can't be born with them, but you can be born again with them. And that's what I want you to remember. We can be born again with the Beatitudes. We can be born again into the way of Jesus. No one is born in the way of Jesus. None of us start out that way. I'm sorry to say it. I know everybody knows someone who's really awesome. And you may even think you, you yourself are really awesome. I used to think I was really awesome. But when I compare myself to the Beatitudes, I come to realize I'm nowhere near awesome. I'm nowhere near close to that standard. But how do I get there? Well, I can be born again. I can be transformed. I can, I can acquire those things through a spiritual, a miraculous, a supernatural change that occurs. And it occurs when I decide to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is why he spoke to the crowds. He had his disciples there. He was initially talking to them, but he wanted the crowds to hear this message because he was inviting them to a whole new level of righteousness, a whole, uh, you know, just a, a way of being, a, a way of living that is by far different than how they were living before. And I want you to notice that he, he even uses the word here, righteous. When you look at the Beatitudes, all of them, there's about 10 when you read them, they all really give us a composite picture of what righteousness looks like. That is the Jesus way. This is what Jesus called righteous. And I gotta make a note here, because this is important. Jesus's way is not to be annoying. Jesus's way is not to be foolish. Jesus's way is not to be zealous or to have a political perspective or to be all about some sort of cause, some sort of uh, a modern day cause that everybody else is supposed to be about. That's not the way of Jesus. He wasn't calling us to a cause or a political view. He wasn't calling us to be annoying or obnoxious. He wasn't even calling us just to be zealous or even just to be a good person. He was actually calling us to a transformative type of righteousness. The kind that can only happen when there's a radical change, like being born again, in someone's life. Now, he ends the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount with the final beatitude, which is, blessed are those who are persecuted. Why did these people get persecuted? I mean, when you read the beatitude, you're going to say to yourself, what's the big deal? I mean, what's wrong with being meek? Or what's wrong with, being, with, with mourning? Or what's wrong with hungering and thirsting after righteousness? And, and many of the others that are mentioned there, what's wrong with that? Well, here's the simple fact. Righteousness, that kind of righteousness, the way that Jesus lays out for us to be, that kind of change, that kind of transformation, is in opposition to the natural person. Mm -hmm. It's in opposition to what we call sinfulness. Right. It's, it's such a different, it's such a massive change that people who don't understand the change are going to attack it. They're not going to like it. So I have a question for you. And I want you to write this down as the first uh, thing on your connection card. And there's a couple different ways you write it. I'm going to try to make it brief so it fits in the line. 
am I on the Jesus way? Am I following the Jesus way? Or you could say, am I righteous? Whichever one appeals to you. Let's read on. Verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, at the end of the Beatitudes, uh, he, he, he sort of... Uh, 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 takes them and sort of sum summarizes them, and then he goes on into verse 11. And, and if you take the first 10 Beatitudes there, verses 3 through 10, ending with the one we just read, if you take them all together, as I said before, we see a picture of what righteousness looks like in Jesus' way, in the way that he defined it. Now, verses 11 and 12, what we just read now, if, if, if the first 10 verses are, are a picture, the next two, 11 and 12, are, are sort of like the video, right? There's sort of the slow motion video of what righteous looks like, righteousness looks like in action, or the way of Jesus looks like in action, specifically when it's insulted, persecuted, or falsely accused. So, and what we see in these verses, when we examine them closely, when we slow it down and we kind of get into the slow-mo and we begin to dig into it, what we see is a few things are revealed about the way a righteous person behaves, or the way a righteous, or, or, or a few things are revealed about what a righteous person looks like in action. And the first one I want to point out is underlined on ver in verse 11. The righteous are blessed. Now this word blessed is interesting in the Bible. Most of us, the best way to translate it to make it simple is it means happy. But the problem is, is the way we understand happy comes from the word happening. So we tend to be happy when happenings go our way. You follow me? Our happiness is based on happenings. But that's not the, the real sense of the word blessed. It does mean to be happy, but it actually communicates a longer term form of happiness, a deeper sense of happiness, a lasting happiness. And what Jesus, what is revealed in verses 11 and 12 is that the righteous person, the person who is following the way of Jesus, has a lasting happiness about them, even in the midst of being persecuted, falsely accused, or insulted, they have a lasting happiness about them. The second thing we see is underlined the phrase, because of me. The righteous, the people on the way of Jesus, following in his footsteps, those that, are, that, are, that have, have, have heard the Sermon on the Mount and decided, yes, I want to become that, I want to be righteous as you say I ought to be righteous, those people are motivated by Christ. We don't get persecuted for stupid reasons as Christians. At least we're not supposed to be. We're not supposed to do things that, that invite persecution because they're just foolish. As I said before, righteousness doesn't mean that, you know, that you're just zealous or that you're pursuing some big cause or that uh, you know, you're, you're acting uh, foolishly. That's not Jesus' definition of righteous. His, his definition of righteous has to do with what we read in the Beatitudes, in the, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and those people that have experienced that transformation, that born again dynamic, where, where our whole perspective has changed and we've adopted the way of Jesus, it's those people 
do that because they're motivated by Christ's example. Amen. Because of me. Amen. And so Christians, far from being uh, uh, crazy, far from living a, a, the kind of lifestyle they live for, for no, uh, with, no seemingly point, with no point to it, are actually very purposeful in what they do. We actually live our lives under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so our code is the code of Christ. And we, we've adopted that code, and that's why we do what we do, even in the face of persecution, of insults, of false accusations. We are going to continue to live up to the code. Right. Because it's not so much about commands for us as it is about a way of being, mm -hmm. how we ought to act, right. who we ought to be. Right what we want to look like in all circumstances. Amen. The last thing I notice here and I underlined is great is your reward. The righteous, those who are following the way of Jesus, even though it is a difficult lifestyle, even though it is different than most other people, even though it, it, it invites a lot of opposition from those that don't understand it, even persecution, one of the great things about it is there's a reward at the end of it. Amen. My kids have gotten me into video games. I've never liked video games my entire life. I'm now into video games. <laughs> and uh, sorta. And uh, I do it more for them. But the idea is of some of these video games is you do your little mission on the video game and then you get rewards. And it's so funny how much I really like rewards. I want those rewards. <laughs> Even in the stupid video game. Well, how much more living my Christian life do I want rewards? I don't want to do this for nothing at the end of the day. If this is all just going to end and we're just going to die and rot in a grave and there's nothing beyond this, then what is the point? I mean, sure, I'll be blessed. I do believe even if there is no reward, the Jesus way tends to be better than every other way, just like the law of Moses tended to be better than any other law. And that's true. But at the end of the day, that would be a bummer if that's all there was. I don't want to just be better. I, I want to receive the reward. And Jesus promises a reward. At the end of each one of the characteristics mentioned in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, there's always a reward attached to them. Amen. Now, someone in here might say, well, that's just terrible motivation as a Christian doing things because you get something. Well, okay. <laughs> but I want something. You go to work, don't you? Yes. Are you just a terrible employee that you want a paycheck? <laughs> you treat your wife well. Are you a terrible husband just because you want, you treat her well just because you want her to treat you well? I mean, there's a dynamic here. There's a relational dynamic that's in play. And rewards are very much a part of that. And they're a good part of that. There's nothing wrong with that. And so let's not go too far and think we're somehow better because we do this just because. We believe it's the right thing to do. Come on. We all do things because we want the reward that they offer. Even things that don't offer uh, long-term happiness. You think of a drug addict. Why do they do it? Because there is a reward. It may be small. It may be short-term, but they still do it for the reward. Right. I'm a psych major. I've got my master's in marriage and family therapy. And one of the things that we learn in psychology and studying human behavior is that one of the most powerful motivators on human behavior is something called Partial intermittent reward. Perfect example. Let me give you an example. Partial intermittent reward. Anybody here ever play a slot machine in Vegas? Yeah. 
Does it not pay out pretty frequently during the course of, of, of playing? Yes. They do. They play out a little bit here, a little bit there, but you end up at the end of the hour putting more in than you get out. Right. How do they get you to do that? How do they get you to sit there for four hours cranking on that arm, or I guess now pushing the button, right? How do they get you to do that? But they give you little rewards along the way. Oh, here's $5. Oh, here's $2. Here's another $4. And you forget, you don't even notice that you've just put $100 into the machine. Partial, intermittent reward. Well, Jesus is offering us something so much better than that. He's offering us lasting happiness. He's offering us a reason to do what we do, a reason to be the way we are because we want to be like him. We want to follow him. And at the end of the day, he's offering us the big payout in eternal life. Amen. And so when you see this kind of righteousness in action, you see the way, the way of Jesus in action. Here's what I want you to write down on your note card. It's worth it. The way of Jesus is worth it. Or you could say righteousness is worth it. Famous Christian lived around 150, or he actually died somewhere around 150, 160 AD. He was a, uh, didn't know Christ personally, but he was like a second, he was a second generation Christian. And he lived at a time when Christianity was heavily persecuted. People were being thrown to lions. They were burned at the stake. They were being uh, killed in the, in the arenas of Rome. And his name was Polycarp. And he's one of my heroes of the faith. One, one of my favorite guys to read about in the early days of Christianity. And, and at 86 years old, he was arrested for his faith. He had become a, a, a well-known leader of the Christians in his area. And when the persecution broke out, the persecutors decided, let's, let's cut off the head. Let's go after the top guy. So they, they arrested Polycarp, 86 years old. And they dragged him to the arena where they burned him alive at the stake. And, and, and before all that happened, Polycarp prayed and he said this. Praying to God, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life. You see, Polycarp had in view, he could, he, he could face his persecution because he had in view the way of Christ and the reward, mm -hmm. eternal life. Amen. You know, as I said before, I said at the beginning, what do I like about the X Games? Well, I like the X Games when they slow things down and I can see all that's going on in that moment. And you find out there's so much more going on. And I hope today, when we look at this statement that oftentimes we, we could easily dismiss and say, man, I wish Jesus didn't say that. I wish persecution didn't have to be a part of this equation. When we look at it a little slower, we examine it in slow motion. Mm -hmm. I hope what you, what you have come to is the same thing I've come to. I, I love this statement. I've, I've gotten a greater appreciation for this statement because I'm changed by it. Amen. It gives me a whole new outlook on why I do what I do. I'm not here just to try to follow a list of commands. I'm not a Christian because I'm just trying to be more better, better than the next person. I'm trying to become like Christ. Amen. I want to I follow in his way because there's so much blessing, there's so much purpose, and there's so much reward Amen. in that way. It truly is better than any other way. I hope you too have come to the same conclusion. That words like this 
are words that, that we can appreciate. Amen. Now that we've examined them in their context and on a deeper level. Amen. At this time, we're going to prepare ourselves to take communion. Communion is a time when we remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's also a time to remember his life and his way. Jesus didn't just preach the way, he actually lived the way. And at the end of the day, he died for the way, for righteousness. Because of his righteousness and because of the righteousness he's calling us to have. And that's what communion's all about. It's remembering him who led the way for us. Let's go to God. We're going to pray. We'll take communion and we'll continue on with our worship time this morning. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together. Thank you for calling us to follow you. Thank you for painting the picture of what following looks like. And thank you for what following does in the moment. Thank you for the blessings, the rewards, and the purpose that we've been given. Thank you for Jesus who led the way for us and was that perfect example. And help us to remember him now and his death, his burial, his resurrection on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.